That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hello, hello, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks for taking time to join me for the next hour as we uh, dive into some topics and conversations, maybe in some different ways than maybe we're all used to, but uh, that focus on really connecting uh, with ourselves, with other people, with things going on out in the world, in ourselves, wherever we might happen to go from week to week. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, you can uh, certainly listen to this live if you are. I really appreciate you doing so. Nice to see you again. And uh, you can also pick this up as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me just fine. Uh, I want to thank the show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids for their continued generous support of what I'm doing here. You can check them out at airside.org, and they're a group, a nonprofit, that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aviation and aerospace careers. And they do it in a very broad, innovative, holistic, there's lots of different adjectives I could choose, but overall under the umbrella of fabulous uh, in ways that they do this. And so you can check them out for yourself, and you'll hear a little bit more about them during the breaks in today's show. So, uh, boy, it has been a very interesting week. Uh, if I could call the last week both in my own life as well as maybe in the world at large, if I could give it one term to define it, I would call it transition. Uh, last week was my 49th birthday, and so I'm transitioning into my 50th year, which my father reminded me, hey, it's your jubilee year. So <laughs> I'm going to celebrate my jubilee year for a year. I got to figure out what that's going to look like. Uh, but it is a transition, right? Moving into a, a, a new phase of life, I suppose, if I want to define it that way. Uh, but I was thinking about that. But then, of course, uh, a lot has happened in the world in the last week or so. And so let's dive into the two main things that we're going to talk about today on the larger show by introducing them in the segment on the news that I call What in the World is Going On? Here we go. Today we are completing the liberation of Balaklia, the first major city in our offensive. I'm sure that it will not be our last. Russia's worst nightmare appears to be unfolding in eastern Ukraine. It could be their gravest setback since the failure to capture Kyiv back in March. These pictures were taken from the city of Kupiansk. Recapturing this place would deal a significant blow to Russia as it's been an important supply route to support Russian forces in Donbass. Of course, that's the first big transition. We could talk about the uh, rapid, increasingly rapid and widespread success of what appears now to be a two-pronged Ukrainian offensive uh, against Russia in, uh, in the eastern part of the country. The one that's making all the news, of course, is the one that east of the uh, city of Kharkov, which is the second largest city in Ukraine, 
that uh, Ukrainian forces there have begun to push Russian forces back towards the border. And there are reports today, unconfirmed so far, but reports that uh, Ukrainian troops have actually reached the Russian border in northeastern Ukraine, which would be very significant. That that town that was mentioned there, Kupiansk, uh, a major railway hub to where a number of railway lines come together from various parts of Ukraine as well as in Russia. And capturing that cuts off the ability of Russia to bring in troops, weapons, food, anything you could think of to resupply the military forces that are there. And if you take a look at a map of Ukraine, this is an area that's in the northeast. The push of this is meant to drive Russian forces back further and further east and cut the supply line that comes straight down through Kupiansk from Russia through the eastern part of Ukraine down to the Black Sea and uh, the Crimea, where then they're, they, they're supplying soldiers that are fighting in Kherson. That's the second part of this offensive, is that push to the southeast towards the Black Sea and Kherson. And now appears that the big push towards Kherson was a way to draw Russia's attention down there initially so that they would not see the offensive uh, to the east of Kharkov coming. And it certainly appears that Ukraine has caught Russia by surprise. At one point, uh, Kupiansk had upwards of 12,000 Russian soldiers in it who were threatening uh, with being encircled by the Ukrainian forces. And according to Russia, Russian state TV, uh, those forces were taken out supposedly to redistribute them for more effective defense, as the Russian uh, ministry called it, uh, of Donbass. That was about as close as Russia will come to probably admitting that their forces were in full retreat. But that is a major shift, a major transition potentially in what is happening in this war. And we're going to take some time uh, today to talk a little bit more about what that means. I had a number of people ask me uh, over this past week in light of what was happening, if I would discuss it on the show and my answer is yes. So we'll get back to that, but not before we take a look at the second big transition story of the past week. Alongside the personal grief that all my family are feeling, we also share with so many of you in the United Kingdom, in all the countries where the Queen was head of state, in the Commonwealth and across the world, a deep sense of gratitude for the more than 70 years in which my mother as queen, served the people of so many nations. That, of course, is King Charles III, which is a really strange, it's just strange to talk about, who is the reigning monarch now uh, in the United Kingdom with the death last week of Queen Elizabeth II, who reigned over the, the British monarchy for 70 years, the longest uh, tenured monarch in British history, the second longest monarch in all of history behind Louis XIV of France, who ruled for 72 years and 110 days back in the 17th and into the 18th century. He died in 1715. And he referred to himself as the Sun King, that everything revolved around him. And he's famous for saying, uh, l'état est moi, the state, I am the state. Uh, This, of course, uh, a very different type of monarchy, a constitutional monarchy uh, in Britain, where She was essentially, as head of state, a figurehead position, but she was, of course, much bigger than that. Her funeral, which is slated for uh, Monday, I believe, the 19th, uh, next week, uh, most likely is going to be the most watched uh, event in television history, would be my guess, uh, around the world, or certainly will be one of them. And it is a major transition. And what's interesting, though, is when people talk about how it will be a major transition, 
No one really can say for sure. And for many people, they are unsure as to why it feels like such a big deal. After all, uh, Queen Elizabeth II did not have any power uh, politically in England under the constitutional monarchy system. Prime ministers who are the head of government, who, of course, they say they serve at uh, they serve the monarch. Uh, they are elected <laughs> in that process and then asked to form, quote unquote, asked to form a government uh, by the monarch. And Queen Elizabeth II, one of the last things that she did before she passed away was uh, invite a new uh, British prime minister, Liz Truss, to create a new government. So that's an interesting question, too. But a lot of people were really surprised or shocked by this. Um, she was 96. I'm not sure why we were shocked by this. But nevertheless, it is a big, seemingly a big moment that a lot of people around the world are paying attention to. But I find it interesting that a lot of people can't necessarily wrap their minds around exactly why. So we're going to talk about both of those today uh, because, you know, some people have asked, too, like from a historian's perspective, what do you think of all that? And I have a lot of different thoughts <laughs> on these things. So we're going to spend uh, our time together, just you and me today, talking about these things. So. Uh, with that in mind, let's just rewind a little bit. Let's talk about Ukraine first, because, of course, that is of the two uh, is certainly, I think it's safe to say, the more significant uh, in terms of what's actually happening in Europe and what's actually happening around the world. Uh, it is remarkable what Ukraine is doing and not because necessarily we should have been underestimating Ukraine at this point. The Ukrainian military, with the help of uh, NATO countries, particularly the United States, but also uh, European countries, has done a phenomenal job over almost now seven months of defending against a much larger Russian invasion force uh, and against a country much larger than itself. So in the sense of Ukrainians being successful, it's not a surprise. What What is perhaps surprising is that Ukraine's ambition and what they're trying to do here is perhaps bigger than what a number of experts were thinking. Just a week ago, uh, we were talking about, even on this show and on other shows, that winter was coming, and it seemed like everybody was settling in in Ukraine for the winter, right? Everybody was going to get their, their lines stabilized, the Russians in the east and, and the Ukrainians in the west, and everybody would bring in weapons over the course of the winter when it's really difficult to fight uh, in the snow and the ice and the uh, sub-zero temperatures, and then we would see what would happen in the spring. Clearly, Ukraine has decided not to wait. And on one hand, I don't blame them. If somebody was occupying my country, I'm not sure I would want to be waiting through a winter uh, to try and push them out. <laughs> so in that sense, it it makes sense. But there's one thing to say you have the desire to do it. There's another thing entirely to say you have the ability to do it. And then it's even further, something bigger entirely, to then go and do it. And once again, Ukraine seems to have surprised international observers, not just in Russia, but around the world, with uh, the audacity and the ambitions of this offensive or this series of offensives, we could call it. First towards Kherson, which is in the southeast of the country, towards Crimea, along the Black Sea, and then the second east of Kharkov in the northeast, again, the push is to cut that supply line, that big Russian supply line that brings supplies down from Russia through Ukraine uh, to the rest of the offensive. If Ukraine is able to hold on to these gains that they're making, and it seems like uh, they are making rapid 
advances in in eastern Ukraine. 3,000 villages just yesterday alone, according to a number of different sources. If that continues, it is going to be very difficult for Russia to take those areas back. Part of what's happened over this six-month war of attrition that has been going on is steadily Ukraine has ground down everything the Russian military needs to conduct successful operations. They've certainly killed a lot of men. Some estimates are as high as 80,000 Russians have been killed or wounded uh, soldiers, which is an immense amount for such a short period of time. They've destroyed a lot of Russian equipment or captured a lot of it. Certainly the influx of Western weapons uh, and technology has played a decisive role in that uh, Ukraine is able to destroy ammunition depots, supply lines, uh, command and control uh, locations, killing high-level officers well behind the front lines of the battle. And when you do all of that, and you do all of that against a country that was expecting to roll over you within days, it means that you've effectively ground down all their effective planning, all the assumptions that they made coming into the conflict to begin with. All those are now out the window, which means Ukraine has succeeded in one of the most important elements involved in fighting a war. They have seized the initiative back from the aggressor. When that happens in a war, it is a major, major moment. And the fact that Ukraine has done this in six months against a nation that, by any measure, should, quote unquote, be able to overwhelm it with sheer numbers, says an enormous amount about Ukraine, of course. It says an enormous amount about the, really, I guess what you could call the the rotting infrastructure of the Russian military and the political system that's uh, allowing this to happen. And it also says a lot about the power of the backing that Ukraine is getting from uh, the West. So the other question that comes up, so it's that big of a deal in my opinion. But second, people have asked, well, why now? Well, yes, part of it is why should any country wait to kick out a liber- uh, to kick out an aggressor? You know, why should any country wait? But there are other, I think, more concrete reasons why Ukraine would choose now, other than just the fact that winter is coming. But that part. I think is worth exploration. First, with winter coming, yes, you are committing your country to months and months and months of that continued grind, which is difficult. The Russians have a lot of weapons and they're using a lot of artillery indiscriminately on civilian targets and civilian infrastructure all over eastern Ukraine. And that's killing a lot of people and depriving them of important things like power. (laughs) And with winter coming, That could lead to starvation, people freezing to death, that type of thing. So that's a very real threat. We talked last week about the nuclear power plant that's right in the middle. The largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe is right in the middle of this war zone. And last week, uh, twice, it was cut off from its power sources. And it's, without getting too scientific about it, it is never good to cut off a nuclear power plant from power sources that keep it running. Because it's like siphoning off a balloon that you're shooting air into, right? That balloon just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually it's going to pop. Fortunately, backup systems uh, have worked to keep this power plant going. But a continued attrition, a battle of attrition along these lines, without that being resolved, increases the chance of a nuclear disaster that would be unparalleled, uh, most likely, uh, in history. So there's that element as well. But of course... The one area that Ukraine is probably most worried about are the things that it cannot control. And in particular, 
It cannot control what Western nations decide to do. It can't control whether Western nations decide to continue to give weapons and uh, money to Ukraine to fund the war effort. It certainly also can't do anything about what Russia chooses to do politically and economically in the world. They only have so many things they have control over. And so with that in mind, I think it's probably a good guess. I am speculating, but I think there, there is reason to believe this, that Ukraine is trying to push the issue forward with Russia to change the political landscape leading into the winter. Russia has been threatening for weeks to cut off European Union nations from natural gas supplies as winter approaches. And it's causing some serious alarm in a number of countries in Europe that are dependent upon Russian energy to keep their homes warm, to keep batteries moving, uh, to, you know, all the comforts of life. There are serious concerns in big countries like Germany and France uh, and then, of course, the Eastern European countries as well, that if Russia does this, it's going to lead to extreme hardship and that might fray the political uh, unity, uh, both internally and between nations in Europe, if they're freezing to death. And, of course, and if, they're, if gasoline is incredibly expensive, all these kinds of things. Now, it's easy for us to take a look at that and go, well, you know, hardship is hardship, but it's not what the Ukrainians are facing. Yes, but human beings have a tendency to focus on their own hardships, however they define that, on their own first. And I think the Ukrainians probably understand that. And so if they can force the issue with the Russians and put the focus on the battlefield, Russia losing on the battlefield, perhaps if they're lucky, Russia being routed on the battlefield, suddenly the war might be looking at a more, you know, uh, more speedy conclusion. Perhaps that's the hope. But then all those questions about how will political uh, support hold on in the West won't be all that important. Second reason I think that the Ukrainians are pushing now uh, before the winter is if they want to continue to receive Western weapons, which have proven to be so crucial in uh, blunting Russia's advantages in numbers, if they want to continue to get that, they, there's a feeling that they need to show that they can't only just defend territory, but they can actually take some back. Those are two very different things, to hold on to territory than to take it back. And so if the Ukrainian military can show that they can take back large areas of territory, and as of this morning, they're claiming uh, about 1,100 square miles of area that they've taken east of Kharkov in the last 24 hours alone, if they can continue to show that, that is going to give confidence in all the capitals in Europe as well as in the United States and elsewhere that continuing to supply billions of dollars in weapons to the Ukrainian cause is not just going to be thrown into a meat grinder where you have Ukrainian and Russian soldiers killing each other with civilians caught in between with no end in sight. The idea would be then, well, perhaps we need to give them more to help them press this advantage that they have to really push the Russians into a corner, to really give the West an opportunity for leverage against Russia politically could very well be a part of Ukraine's thinking in all of this. <clears throat> so in that sense, winter does matter because once winter sets in, and if it's set in at the status quo, pretty much at that point, Ukraine's ability to control what's going to happen politically ends. By changing the equation, by pushing a military offensive and have it be successful, they're actually changing the dynamics or potentially changing the dynamics of the political game, which in the end is what is going to be ending this war.
one way or the other. There will have to be a political settlement of some sort or a political outcome to this. And this is Ukraine's best possibility, best option to be a part of making that political settlement as advantageous for Ukraine as possible. Now, some big questions uh, come out of this. Okay, and when we come back, we'll finish up with some of these big questions and then we'll transition over to talking about Queen Elizabeth II. So come on back. We'll talk a little bit more on This Show is All About You. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back to This Show is All About You. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, talking about the big transition going on in Ukraine uh, today. But then also we're going to talk a little bit about the big transition going on in uh, Great Britain with the death of Queen Elizabeth II. But finishing up with our uh, some, some thoughts I had on Ukraine, there are some big questions uh, coming out of this. You know, in particular, the, the first one, most immediate one is if Ukraine reaches Russia's borders, which it sounds like they have, at least in the northeast of the country, will they cross Russia's border if they need to. Um, people are divided on whether that would be a big deal. Uh, the Ukrainian forces have been attacking installations with rockets inside Russia for months now. So the areas of Russian territory that border uh, or near the border with Ukraine have been a part of this war for quite some time. Certainly uh, Russian-occupied Crimea, which is uh, Ukrainian territory, has been attacked regularly in recent weeks. So on one hand, you could say it's not all that big of a shift. Second, but second, you could say it's actually would be a major one because troops entering Russia um, is a very significant thing if that happens. No one necessarily really knows what will happen. But if that does, that might change um, some of the dynamic in all of this. Of course, another big question is what can Russia do in response to this? And who really knows? One of the one of the biggest problematic parts of living in a dictatorship, <laughs> especially a longstanding dictatorship like Vladimir Putin's, is uh, there is no transparency at all. And when the dictatorship controls um, all the media outlets and all the information, like Putin does in Russia, it can be impossible to know what's going on behind the scenes or what might be possible behind the scenes. And so it's really all speculation. Uh, however, you know, and certainly speculation about Putin's health uh, doesn't help. Everybody wants to know, would this be enough to bring down Putin? Well, who knows? But, you know, the question that happens, too, is if Putin leaves, who replaces him? Is it somebody who's more zealous on Ukraine or less zealous? You know, there's no way to know. Will Russia follow through on uh, cutting off uh, 
fuel aid to Europe in the months ahead? No one really knows there. Will they will they cut off uh, food distribution, food shipments from Ukraine? Will they violate that agreement they made with Ukraine to allow uh, grain vessels in the Black Sea to leave? They could do that as well. They might also increasingly want to cozy up to uh, countries around the world that they think that can help them, in particular China, lesser extent North Korea. But certainly their their cooperation with China has paid some dividends in the fact that the ruble hasn't completely collapsed, and certainly they are able to sell uh, their oil um, on market still in a number of areas in Asia because uh, the Chinese support it. So could they double down on that relationship with China to the detriment of Ukraine? It's possible. However, Russia certainly gives off the impression that all their best ideas have already been played. <laughs> And don't seem to be working. And on one hand, that's easy to chuckle about. On the other hand, uh, it's worth noting that a, a country that is a nuclear power backed into a corner is not necessarily the best thing uh, for global stability. Could Putin decide to use tactical nukes uh, on Ukrainian soil to blunt the Ukrainian offensive? It's possible. He has that ability. Uh would the effect of that be to effectively cut him off from all support from around the world? It might. China might not like the idea of backing somebody willing to use nuclear weapons that are not only going to kill civilians, but kill a number of Russians as well. That's not really somebody you want to be uh, sitting across the table with, uh, inking agreements that all of you are supposed to follow. So there's no way to know. It is possible Russia might uh, produce a mass mobilization where they want to bring a number of uh more Russian men into the military, but they've already been doing that for weeks now. And that takes a long time to train. And based on a lot of reports coming out of Russia, a lot of people might support the overall special operation, quote unquote, as they call it in Russia, but fewer and fewer of them actually want to fight in it. <laughs> because no matter what Russian state media says about what's happening there, the fact is, is when Everyday Russians are getting notices of the deaths of loved ones or stop hearing from those loved ones entirely. It's not a far stretch for them to understand what may very well have happened to those loved ones. And enough people getting those messages, the families of upwards, families and friends of upwards of 80,000 people, that's going to have an effect whether Putin wants to admit it or not. Is there a possibility that Russia could shift their focus and put more pressure on Belarus, the northern neighbor? of Ukraine to get more actively involved and to station more troops there to push directly south towards Kiev again. It's possible, but Ukraine is ripping up all the supply lines uh, that Russia needs to get troops out there in the first place. Right? So there are a lot of open questions here. What is clear is what everybody thought was going to be just the steady grind into the winter, and we'll see what happens in the spring doesn't appear to be the new reality on the ground. Um, and in fact, Ukraine is finding success practically everywhere it goes, not just in the eastern sections of Ukraine where the focus is right now on all the gains they're making there, but also in the south as they push more and more towards Kherson. If you take a look at a map of Ukraine, if R Ukrainian forces keep moving east and cut those supply lines, Russia, in order to reinforce all of its forces in Crimea, and in Kherson, they have to keep moving their supply lines further and further and further east. And at some point, they run out of land and they have to ship them by boat. <laughs> that is exceedingly difficult because the Russian Black Sea Fleet has already been ripped up pretty good. 
by the Ukrainians to begin with. So they have no way to defend those ships. And it's a much slower process than moving troops and equipment by land, either by road or by railroad. So the further east this goes, even into Russia, the more impossible it's going to be not only for Russian forces to reinforce its military fighting in Ukraine, but also to reinforce anybody sitting in Crimea. (laughs) And if Crimea falls, then all of the forces that Russian forces that are in Kherson will be effectively cut off. Ukraine knows this. This is their territory. This is the areas that they have sworn that they will take back, that they will not negotiate um, away with Russia out of this. It doesn't include the returns of those areas. And if you take a look at what's happening, this seems to be the perfect process that they have put in place to effectively hit the Russians at their weakest points. And Russia has not shown any ability to effectively adapt to what Ukraine does tactically on the battlefield. They haven't been able to show it since the first days of the war. And so it is a significant shift what's going on. What that will mean in the long run, who knows? I could come in here a week from now and the story could look completely different or it might look like more of the same. The Russians are going to fight. (laughs) They will continue to fight. One of the things that military forces will do is, and it's one of the weird, weird things we saw it in World War I, when you get tens of thousands of your troops killed, or hundreds of thousands in the case of World War I, it becomes increasingly difficult to consider the possibility of just saying, okay, we were wrong, we're going to step out of this, we're done. Because the more people that you get killed, the more deaths you have to justify to a population back home. And what happened in World War I is the numbers got so high so quickly, nobody in their politically could say, well, we, we won't survive this if we say we are done. We have to follow this through to victory in order for those deaths to, quote unquote, mean something. In the case of World War I, that led to four years of carnage that killed 10 million people on the Western Front alone. In Ukraine, this could just, the more Russians die, the m- more difficult it might be for Russia to actually say we are going to end this because of the cost of all this at home. That is one of the, the sad ironies of the whole thing. So we will see how that goes. Okay. So with that in mind, let's shift our focus to talking about the other big transition from last week, uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, perhaps one of the most uh, recognized figures uh, around the world, not just because she was uh, the monarch of the United Kingdom, but because of just how long she had been and because she came to rule in 1952 at the uh, the end of World War II and at the advent of, I guess, what we could call the modern communication and information age, television. She was going to be the first monarch seen widely on television and was. And uh, eventually, uh, television and other mediums became a primary way for the queen to communicate. Most famously, uh, every Christmas, she would give a nationally televised address uh, to the people of Great Britain as well as in the Commonwealth, best wishes, that type of thing, reflection on the past year. And it was seen as something that everybody uh, in those countries would stop and listen to when it happened. She also became famous in part for her longevity. Uh, the fact that she came, she became queen at such a young age as a teenager and ruled for another 70 years, dying at the age of 96. Uh, that is a remarkable remarkable uh, stretch of time. And it also, she was the monarch of Britain at a time when Britain's very nature as a nation was being challenged, not just by the second world war, but by the decline and dissolving of its empire. 
The British Empire once famously could claim that it, it was an empire upon which the sun never set because Britain had colonies pretty much everywhere in the world. They had them uh, as Elizabeth was growing up and as Britain was entering the, the Second World War. Britain had colonies in the Caribbean, in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, India, the so-called crown jewel of the British Empire was a major part of it, uh, in Southeast Asia as well as in the Pacific. So literally somewhere in the world, <laughs> uh, the sun was up on the British Empire. And that extended British influence, not only politically and militarily, but culturally all around the world. At the end of the Second World War, uh, Britain was wrecked. It, it had cost everything that it had in order to survive the Nazi onslaught. And they had been steadily replaced by their allies, the United States, as the primary Western power in the world. And so a lot of decisions had to be made about what to do with the empire. And prior to Elizabeth coming to uh, ascending the throne, there were a number of big countries in the longstanding British Empire that had already declared independence or were in the process of doing so. Most significantly, Ireland had been uh, independent long before this, and India declared its independence in 1947, and areas of the Middle East that uh, Britain was overseeing, particularly the areas of Palestine and, and now and present-day Israel, had also gone independent as well. And there were a number of countries in Africa and in Southeast Asia that were moving towards independence as well, mainly because countries like Britain and other European nations that had empires like France um, and Holland simply did not have the political, financial, or military resources to take those areas back <laughs> um, after the Second World War. And the United States effectively didn't support that effort either. The United States came out and said, you know, we're not, a big, we're not big fans of these countries holding on to their empires. And such was the situation that what the Americans said mattered. And so when Elizabeth became queen, all these political situations and these, this geopolitical landscape was shifting beneath her feet. Now, all of this was the responsibility of various prime ministers uh, to debate in parliament and to make decisions in all the various ministries. And certainly, uh, the young queen had her opinions about this. Uh, there are a lot of people, of course, who've watched uh, the Netflix series The Crown, you know, and learning a lot of this probably through through that show in the first place. It's worth noting that is a dramatization. So there's some things in there that are assumed and made up and things like that. But nevertheless, you do get the sense of an Elizabeth who cares deeply about what's going on in the world, but also and cares very deeply about um, the status of the monarchy and the importance of the monarchy to British identity as it is changing, as a source of stability and, and, and familiarity in an ever-changing world for British citizens. But she's also comes across as a person who is stuck in the middle oftentimes of how to effectively show that, how much tradition needed to be held onto for the benefit of Britain and how much modernization was appropriate, how many shifts were appropriate, how accessible do you make uh, Buckingham Palace, for example, do you allow, you know, cameras in uh, to to film things? You know that these were questions that they seem small, particularly to those of us who are outside of the British orbit. But at the time they were big. And certainly the criticisms that uh, have been popping up in social media and even on regular news outlets since Elizabeth's death about the importance of the monarchy. Is it overstated? Is it uh, is it in bad taste to have something that is has 
an institution that gets so much money in a world where there is so much need. And, of course, big questions about should Britain apologize for its imperial behavior? Should they make reparations to countries that have been part of the empire that they had exploited once upon a time? Should the new king, Charles III, uh, make that an active part of what he's pursuing? All those things popped up very, very quickly after Elizabeth II's death. And though certainly they existed while she was alive, but I think there was a sense for a very long time, uh, particularly in the last few decades, that Elizabeth II was who she was. She had established herself as a very authoritative queen, um, a very well-loved and appreciated queen by people throughout Britain as well as through a number of people around the world. And ironically, also in America, a country that had thrown off that monarchy once upon a time. Uh, She's really been embraced uh, by many Americans and is beloved by many Americans. She had kind of established herself for who she was. And so the fact that these questions now are popping up, that she is gone, uh, makes sense to me. It surprises some people, but not me, mainly because there is a new face of the monarchy, in this case, her son, Charles, and uh, who has probably maybe one of the most unenviable jobs of any monarch in all of history, following somebody of not only just that longevity, but of that stature, a truly global person. And Charles isn't anywhere nearly as popular as his mother was and, and continues to be. And certainly when somebody passes away, their popularity tends to soar, particularly somebody like a, like a monarch. And uh, it's going to be a real challenge for Charles, who's in his late 70s already. And certainly there's a lot of people that are probably thinking more about how long will he be on the throne before he passes on and his son William and his wife Kate will ascend to uh, king and queen respectively. All of that going on, the big question that comes up is, why do we treat this as such a big deal? <laughs> and again, that might have something to do with where you live in the world. Uh, if you're a British subject, I think it's inherent. That's like somebody asking in the United States. Um, I'm not even sure this would be equivalent, but why does NFL football matter? <laughs> you know, Something that most Americans go, well, that's just a mad, natural made part. Of, it's part for the course. This is what we do. This is a quintessential part of being American. There are much better examples than that. I just can't think of any at the moment. Uh, but that is the big question. Why is this a big deal? And I'm not sure I necessarily have better answers than anybody else, but I do have some thoughts on this that we'll get to right after we take another break um, on this show is all about you. Stick around, come on back, and I'll give you a few more thoughts on the Queen before we finish up. See you in a minute. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating?, 
tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back to this show is all about you. I'm your host, JDK Winnikin, finishing up today's episode, talking a little bit about uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth II of England and what it all means uh, and the, the challenge of that question to accurately define, certainly for British subjects who many of them have only known uh, Elizabeth II as the only monarch that they remember in their in their lives. That is going to have an effect. Uh, she was, by all accounts, to many people in Britain, a very comforting presence, a very constant presence. And like I said before the break, in a tumultuous set of decades for Britain where its very identity was shifting and every part of its, uh, of its uh, daily life was beginning to shift and its political influence around the world was beginning to shift, she was a steady, constant reminder of not just the past glory of England. That's easy to, that's easy to focus on but on a sense of centrality, a sense of importance, a sense of power, a sense of belonging. Now, that might be really unique to many in Britain, and, and certainly in Britain there, is, there are not uniform opinions about the monarchy. Ask a lot of people in Scotland or Wales how they feel about the monarchy. You're going to get a lot of different answers, okay? Maybe not about, and certainly different answers about individual members of the royal family. Certainly in Ireland you're going to get a lot of different uh, opinions about the monarchy. At the same time, what I think is worth focusing on is when we talk about why it matters is in this case for Britain, a highly influential country over the last two, you know, you know, 200, 250, actually going further back 400 years. This is a major shift step away from a connection to a past period of time that was remarkably different. When Britain, much like the United States has been since the Second World War, was really at the center of political affairs around the world. It was the center of economics for many, for many decades. It was the center of, of the arts uh, for a very long time, uh, and certainly the center of uh, political and military power for a very long time. When all of that shifts and a country's identity moves away from one that gives people a sense of meaning, particularly when well-being comes with it, economic well-being, social well-being, a sense of being important in the world, that, is a, that can cause on an individual and a group level a lot of nervousness and a lot of anxiety, social anxiety. And it happens to every society around the world. You could say even in this country, in the United States, we're going through something similar as the country shifts demographically, <laughs> as it shifts politically, as, as the technological revolution that we're all a part of continues to change the job market and we're coming out of COVID and what has that changed in our social fabric, our political fabric, our, how we do our daily lives. That anxiety is a very real thing. And what can happen sometimes, and I've said on this show before in different contexts, nostalgia and connecting to things in the past can be really powerful and really comforting, even if they don't necessarily match the reality <laughs> of what that past was once like. The criticisms of the British monarchy in history have validity to them. They do. Any imperial enterprise is built and has been built throughout history on powerful taking advantage of the not powerful, of exploitation, um, of some, in some subtle ways, but also in overt ways. And all of those things were as part, a part of the British Empire. They were part of the French Empire. They were part of the Dutch Empire, the Belgian 
the American, you call it what you will. So those things happen. And those are conversations that certainly are going to continue about what to do about that. How does, does the British monarchy need to produce a conversation or a reckoning with its own past to continue to have relevance in the 21st century in Britain and around the world? That's an open question. And that's one that King Charles III, maybe his son William, uh, will have to contend with in the decades ahead. That could be very important because of the notoriety and the visibility of the British monarchy around the world. Them taking it that step to move in that, discuss- in, in that direction of having those discussions could have a really profound effect. Who knows? Or it could do nothing, right? Because it's the British monarchy. <laughs> they don't have a lot of say, in a real sense, of what happens and what doesn't happen in the world. But... Let us be careful to not just simply reject the power of symbols. Symbols have the ability to produce emotion, to produce a sense of connectivity, a sense of belonging that people seem to really want to have. And of course, there's a sense of community and connection that can come through these types of symbols too. And yes, by their very nature, that requires symbols to be somewhat separated more and more in people's minds from the reality of things. And maybe that's unavoidable in the human experience. What I do think is more important here is honestly being able to recognize that all the conversations about the past history of the British Empire are valid. All the, all the conversations about its validity as a symbol are also important to have. There's also, of course, the power of the grandeur. And it's easy to get cynical about that, right? The, the fairy tales, the big weddings that, you know, have been watched the world over, uh, you know, British royal weddings. Even though there's royal weddings for other European countries all the time, uh, it's the British one that gets the most notice. Uh, it's easy to be cynical about that. And <laughs> it, it also raises some really interesting questions as to why we care so much. And it'd be really easy for me to sit here and say, well, it's because we like distraction. We like the grandeur. Um, you know, we like, we like the, uh, the controversy. We like the dirt, right, that people dish up. Uh, you know, as much as we love the grandeur of the royals, uh, if you judge by media and, and social media uh, commentary, we love the failures of the royal family just as much, uh, if not more, than the grandeur that's associated with them. Um, they're an easy subject to focus on in terms of gossip, in terms of uh, conversation about what matters and what doesn't. Those are easy. And in that sense, it can kind of feel like, you know, um, emotional candy. You're sort of snacking on the candy. It's, it'll give you some calories, but it's not really the best for you. And there's probably better things you can eat. Now, that's, that's what comes up for me with this kind of thing. At the same time, it is undeniable that with Queen Elizabeth II's passing, it is a big symbol of the massive generational change that has been happening for the last handful of decades. More and more people who connect back to the World War II era and the early Cold War era and then even earlier than those, those two periods, those people are becoming less and less as each day goes by. And as living memory of things passes, living memory of all the people who are around what can be remembered gets priority oftentimes. It's being seen as more relevant than something in the past. 
I've always called that the tyranny of the recent. The idea that what's happening around us that's been recent is more important than things that happened further back in the past. One of the advantages of having somebody as long-standing, uh, 70 plus years on the throne as Queen Elizabeth, is there's that memory, that connection back to that period of time when really important lessons were learned, you know, from things like depressions, global depressions, world wars, superpower nuclear conflicts, uh, social upheaval, question of, of wealth redistribution, all the things that went on in England and around the world during Queen Elizabeth II's reign. When that is lost, when that dies, just by the sheer passage of time, it can be really easy by losing that connection to lose our sense of that we need to keep remembering it. It's one of the reasons why when World War II veterans die, we, we notice that, we note that. And they get really noted in newspapers, both big and small around the country, because that's more living memory gone of a really, really important event that shaped the world that we live in now. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Pretty soon, there will be just as many people in this world who remember World War II as who remember ancient Rome. Zero. And we tend to look back on ancient Rome as perhaps a very interesting historical subject to read about when either we're in school or when we have nothing else to do. And we don't really take a look at its overall importance to us today. As time goes by, that will happen with things like the First World War the Second World War, and all the things that came out of that. And an increasingly in a world that focuses because of social media and just how larger communication works on the here and the now <laughs> to the extreme, right, to the point that today's controversy won't be controversial in two days because there'll be another one. The fact that we live in a world like that indicates or suggests that those connections that go back further and further into the past are already being lost en masse, whether we recognize them because of the passing of a monarch like Elizabeth II or somebody local or, or not at all. And I think that is something that is noteworthy. Elizabeth II was a lot of things to a lot of people, and she seemed to understand that to most people she was never going to be just who she was. She was going to be the symbol of whatever they needed her to be. With her passing, Whatever those symbols were to people, that connection to that era is gone to the point where it will only exist in history books. And those books will only be opened if people decide they're important enough to open those books to look at them. And it's not as if Queen Elizabeth II could deliver all of that meaning just by herself. But her presence, her popularity, her notoriety kept that more front and center for people than it will be now. That's just, the, that's just the nature of it. And that's something that's probably inescapable in the human experience with these types of things. So when people ask me, why should we care? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Some people will care. Some people won't. And, you know, some people were emotional about it. Some people weren't emotional about it. Some people are angry about it. Some people weren't even aware it happened, <laughs> believe it or not. But maybe the better question is, what does it mean to have that type of connection that is now passed on, that is now gone? What does that present for us in the present as far as how we look back at that past? Not just the past in this case of a monarch, but the era 
in which she grew up, the era that she had memory of, that she continued to talk about, that her ideas and her statements continued to put forward as important. Will anybody continue to pick those up? Will Charles III pick those up? Will her grandson William pick those up? And if they do, will it matter? Will people listen? Only time will tell with that. But the fact is, a monarchy, because of its very nature, extends over time. That's the entire idea, is that they are supposed to last beyond the lives of individual monarchs. And in this area of symbology, I guess, of symbolism, there can be real power to that, to connect people to the past, even if it's a nostalgic one, even if it's one that doesn't necessarily match the full reality. What it can do is remind people that there once was something before, but there are bigger issues, maybe bigger things to keep in mind than simply just the day in, day out of our mundane lives, the meaning of life, the important things in life. In the case of Elizabeth II, her belief in the vitality and the necessity of democracy, ironically for a monarch, right? Those are things that we are sorely in need of defending to this day. And the world has lost one of its biggest advocates and one of its most popular voices for the continuing strength of democracy in the, in the loss of Elizabeth II. So that matters because it's one less voice. And that means that where that big voice has gone, more voices need to pick up the slack to keep the volume high, if you will. So those are just a few thoughts uh, this week on what's happening in Ukraine and, of course, what it all means that Queen Elizabeth II has passed on. Hopefully you found that interesting. If you have any questions about that or any comments, you can reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can reach out to me at wordsbyjdk.com, my website. And I would uh, love to hear from you. Really appreciate you sticking around to listen uh, to this episode of This Show is All About You. Uh, by way of thank you, uh, first of all, um, if you have missed any of this episode or any other episodes, you can find them wherever you find your podcast. You can also find episodes at wordsbyjdk.com. Here we go with the thank yous. This show is all about you, is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks again to him. Show, the show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Be sure to check them out at airsci.org. And the original theme music for the show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Rick Riz, Lizbeth Siskar, Antoinette Bernardo, Ken and Margaret Winnikin, Mary Olson, The Foster Four, Lorelai Murray, Janice Lake, The Dogs Dapper and Monty, Kevin McEwen, Seth Mormon, Stacey Heller, Bruce Falmer, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to the Seattle Mariners for keeping hope alive that my lifelong fandom will actually pay off here this year. To the folks at the Human Potential Institute for all the great work they do. To the dedicated people at NASA working so hard to get a rocket back to the moon. That could be a huge thing for us. And to all who sent me birthday regards and wishes last week. I truly appreciate it and I love all of you. And to you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. As a way to send you off into the week, here's an original haiku. Moving place to place, time to time, from and away, means we are alive. Chins up, everybody. Thank you.